deserving listeners. It's just me today. I thought I would respond to some patron emails. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk J. Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor at Antioch University in Seattle. This email is from patron Charles from Paris. He writes, I've been reading Man's Search for Meaning, which is written by Viktor Frankl, and it's about his description of how he survived the Holocaust and how it informed his therapy style. I've also read Esther Perel. Uh, I've, I've also read that Esther, Esther Perel is a child of survivors of the Holocaust, something that drove her into the psychotherapy profession. My mom, too, is a Jewish therapist and the child of survivors of the Holocaust. What I'm curious about is why it seems that Holocaust survivors, their children, and Jews in general seem so overrepresented in the psychotherapy profession. I don't mean that like in an anti-Semitic way, but I'm interested to know what the deal is about Judaism and therapy. My mother shrugged her shoulders when I asked her, so I need your help. Uh, this is a good question, and yeah, it's a, a pretty known thing in the, uh, especially particularly the history of psychoanalysis. Um, but uh, to answer your question, I, I should say first that Jewish people were dominant in the profession long before World War II. Uh, you know, it all began with Freud and Breuer, who are both Jewish men in Austria in the late 1800s, so even well before World War I. And of the original 13 members of Freud's college, I should point out that before getting into this, that uh, there were a number of fields of psychology and uh, early counseling efforts and psychoanalysis. You know, there are lots of different kinds of uh, camps going on at the time. So primarily what I'm talking about is the beginning of psychoanalysis, which most people believe to be the major uh, root that eventually grew into all the different forms of talk therapy, psychotherapy counseling that we have today. But anyway, so of the original 13 members uh, of, so Freud had uh, uh, like 12 other people around him, uh, 12 or 13 people around him uh, that began the profession of psychoanalysis. And of uh, all the 13 members, all of them were Jewish except for one guy, and that was Carl Jung. Carl Jung was uh, Swiss, I believe, and I think Christian. And he was the only one who was not Jewish. Also, the vast, vast majority of patients in the beginning of psychoanalysis were also Jewish. 95%, according to one estimate, were Jewish. And the list goes on and on. You, again, you have Sigmund Freud, jo Joseph Breuer, you have Alfred Adler, you have Ellis, you have Ferenzi, Abraham, Fromm, Melanie Klein, Bertha Pappenheim, John Gottman here in Seattle, the uh, renowned couples therapist. You have Reich and Otto Ronk and um, Aline Deutsch and Lewin and Maslow and Fritz Perls and Steve Pinker, who is a contemporary today. You have Eric Erickson and Milgram and Viktor Frankl and Irvin Yalom, who I introduced on the podcast recently, and Rebecca Bloom, who I have had on this podcast, all Jewish therapists. So, you know, of the major figures in the beginning, um, the va and, and, you know, going up until the 60s and 70s, uh, yeah, uh, way over representative <laughs> of, of Jewish people. And... Uh, 
and I'll get into the reasons why in a second, because there are people have looked into this before. Um, also, um, just a little detail about, how, how, you know, this phenomenon early on when, you know, Freud was first forming the profession, he actually was thinking about who he was going to pass on leadership once he, you know, got older and retired and died. He was thinking, okay, who's going to carry the torch for psychoanalysis? Well, most of you know that he he decided to pass on leadership to Carl Jung. And he partially based this decision to pass it on to Carl Jung so that the public or other people in the medical profession wouldn't think that psychoanalysis was a Jewish um, conspiracy because it was it was thought that, uh, you know, because there were so many Jews who, you know, were forming psychoanalysis. And since there was so much anti-Semitism back then, as there is today, but much more back then that led to the Nazis in the 30s and genocide, that um, Jung or Freud was worried that um, psychoanalysis would never be accepted in the broader community because of anti-Semitism. And so he wanted to pass it on to Carl Jung, partially because Jung was not Jewish. Um, and this uh, this. Uh, conspiracy or this anti-Semitism associated with mental health has carried over into today in 2018. For example, the, the white supremacist guy who killed nine black people in church in Charleston in 2015. Uh, I don't know if you remember this event. He walked into a prayer service in church and killed nine people and injured more people, all African-Americans, including the pastor and a state senator. He just walked in, into a church, white supremacist, you know, total hate crime, total uh, bolstered by uh, propaganda that is common to white supremacy in, in the United States. And he just, you know, killed people in church. I'm just like, my God. And he, <clears throat> he has similar thoughts about psychotherapy, that were, uh, you know, holdovers from all the way back uh, from anti-Semitism in the, you know, over 100 years ago. It's just amazing how these ridiculous notions just get passed down from generation to generation. And so it, it came out because he would write about it in his journals, but it became much more, prev much more important, I guess, because he's he, so currently in court or whenever he was being tried, I don't know if it's over yet, he it, he decided to act as, as as his own lawyer, this guy who killed all these people. And I'm purposely not saying his name because I don't want to glorify these kinds of people. And he, uh, as his own lawyer, he asked the jurors to not consider his mental health when they decide whether or not to sentence him to the death penalty because he considers psychology to be, quote-unquote, a Jewish invention. <laughs> he, so not just psychoanalysis, but... All of psychology, he considers it to be a Jewish invention. And, um, you know, this is just uh, sick. It's what fake news does to people. This is what insular, non-scientific thinking does to people. And it's what culture wars do to people. You know, it polarizes them. So, so this notion that uh, psychology and psychoanalysis and psychotherapy is a Jewish conspiracy um, is still around. 2018, you know. If when you asked, if you would have asked me when I was a kid, uh, when I, 1980, that in the year 2018 there would still be this kind of ridiculousness, I would have said, "That's silly." Surely by the year 2018, 
our society will have advanced well beyond such silly notions. Well, here we are. So, um, all right. So why were there so many Jewish people in psychoanalysis and psychotherapy and psychology in the beginning and, you know, for decades of, of the beginning? Um, the, the, the answer to that is there's no way to know exactly because we don't really understand human beings in general anyway, and particularly when you look at them as a conglomerate. And so we don't really know. But if, you know, there are some speculations so and some strong speculations, some pretty, you know, easy to say things. For example, uh, one speculation or one idea, one reason is that in the early 1900s and the late 1800s in Europe, uh, Jewish people were restricted from particular professions due to anti-Semitism. Um, they uh, either by law or by culture, they were kept out of certain professions, you know, like if you wanted to, I don't know, work in government or something, they might say, you know, there might be people who would, one, not elect you because you're Jewish, or two, not assign you to certain posts because they didn't want Jewish people working in government or something. But they were, quote unquote, allowed to be physicians, which was the profession that led people to become uh, interested in psychology and psychoanalysis, which, you know, was the dominant form of psychotherapy, psychotherapy at the time. And once Freud became, a, you know, invented psychoanalysis and, and it, that became very prominent and famous, it became widely known across Europe that, uh, you know, this Jewish man was uh, leading the charge with this, pr this new profession that was exciting. And, you know, by definition, since the guy in charge is Jewish, if you're a Jewish physician, you're like, hey, I could go over there and surely I'd be accepted. And they were. So they were much more likely, Jewish people were much more likely to choose to be, a, uh, to work in psychoanalysis because, uh, and be highly motivated to work themselves into that because it was a, it was a place where they could actually work and not have to worry about discrimination as much. Uh, another, so, so that's just, and, and, and we see this actually in a lot of different, um, pockets of the world, actually, this, this happens all over the world in different cult. Whenever you have oppression or racism that restricts certain, um, professions, then you'll see certain cultural groups, certain marginalized groups, um, electing to, to work in particular, uh, arenas. For example, an obvious one in the United States is why there's so many African-Americans who, who work in, uh, the NBA who, be, you know, decide to become, um, basketball players or football players because they, but African-Americans are culturally restricted from working in a lot of professions. Legally, they're allowed to work in any profession, but because of discrimination, they know that they are not likely to move ahead in, in the profession. So they, but they know that if they work, if they, you know, strive for the NBA, they'll, you know, it's based on your ability to play and not necessarily your race. And so, um, so, you know, and there's a lot of African Americans in the NBA and in the NFL. And so they know that they'll be welcome. So that's one example. Another example in the United States is, uh, Filipinos are marginalized in the United States and there are certain professions that uh, they are attracted to because there are other Filipinos who have led the way into that profession. 
uh, nursing is one and working at the um, post office is, is another one. It's, it's a stereotype for sure. And, you know, certainly Filipinos work all over the place. But, but you know, uh, or if you're Ethiopian working as a taxi driver in the United States or opening a convenience store or something, you know, there are certain jobs that, uh, you know, a – uh, person, if if you feel like you're not allowed to go into different professions, then y- you go towards where you think you're going to experience less discrimination, essentially. And so, Jewish people heading into psychoanalysis were um, that that was one of the reasons. So, another reason, is, another major, so so that you can say is sort of societal marginalization reasons as to why. Uh, they uh, Jewish people were um, attracted to psychoanalysis, and it might have actually kept out non um, Jewish people because they might not want to be associated with um, you know the dirty Jewish people as it as it was in in Austria and Europe at the time. Uh, another reason, another main reason, is that Jewish culture itself and Jewish religion and Jewish traditions are somewhat compatible with psychotherapy in a few ways. For example, the Jewish tradition and Jewish culture, it tends to privilege dialogue and philosophy more than other cultures do, um, in Europe anyway. The Jewish tradition, there's a long tradition of talking about your pain, um, maybe because they were constantly suffering under some sort of oppressive uh, you know, often genocidal government or society. And so as a way to cope with all of that, they valued voicing your suffering and voicing your pain and getting support from other people to let it out. And that that was all talk therapy was, was, you know, let out your pain, you know, tell me your pain and I'll listen. Um, another cultural tradition that might have been very compatible with psychotherapy for Jewish people is that, um, they they grew up as an oppressed minority, as I've been talking about. And so they learned to question society. You know, uh, it's similar for me. Uh, growing up as half Japanese-American and half European-American, I experienced a lot of odd things. Uh, growing up in a vastly white society, there were lots of things thrown out about Asians and about me and about other you know races and uh, about white people and da-da-da. And as someone who was outside of that, uh, all white, you know, I wasn't white entirely. So I, uh, exp- I you know, I, it, it made me look at the people around me and their assumptions and notice that they were wrong about some things, right? Like they had ideas about Asians and about Japanese people. And I would be like, oh, they're wrong. And so when you realize that they're societal, when you realize early in life, that society is wrong about some things, then you begin to you, then you begin to start questioning a lot of things, and I think that's where a lot of my questioning comes from. Is just like um, early in life realizing that society was wrong, and so throughout you know even early in life, I remember questioning society a lot. You know, just like I, I very rarely will take things uh, as face value, and. Um, and for Jewish people, you know, if you're a very small, very marginalized, very oppressed minority in Europe, uh, you, you learn to be like, well, people think we're dirty Jews and we're out to get them and we're greedy and there's this vast conspiracy and, and I know that that's wrong. And so 
when you learn to question society, you're, you know, you're just like, man, you know, what else is society wrong about? Well, that's kind of what psychotherapy is about. You know, it's especially the beginning of psychoanalysis. It was, uh, Freud was, uh, you know, one of the things he was famous for was that he questioned the way sexuality was, was talked about in society and that people would have sexual urges, but society would, um, you know, oppress that and the problems would emerge because people's sexuality couldn't really be realized. And so, um, being an oppressed minority, Jewish people in Europe, that might have helped them to um, understand the main tenets of uh, psychotherapy and talk therapy. And another uh, cultural aspect to Jewish people that might have helped them to, uh, you know, be very compatible with psychoanalysis and psychotherapy in general is the, tr- the traditional role of the rabbi. You know, the rabbi is someone who listens to people, who guides and debates and, you know, goes to the text and, um, you know, has wisdom and helps and, you know, is, is a sort of a father figure outside of the family. And so uh, that role of the rabbi is somewhat, you know, uh, similar to the role of a, a psychoanalyst. I mean, they're different for sure, but um, there's some analogies there. So, so those are all the reasons that I could come up with and what scholars will actually talk about as well as to why uh, there were so many Jewish people who founded the profession of psychoanalysis and to a broader extent, psychotherapy in general. So I hope that answers your question, patron Charles from Paris. Okay, let's go on to a different email. All right, this email is from an anonymous patron. They write, I'm listening to your Narcissistic Personality Disorder podcast, and I'm taking copious notes. So just chiming in here, I did a deep dive for patrons only on Narcissistic Personality Disorder. It was, uh, I think, nine hours of a deep dive. Um, All right, so this patron is listening and taking copious notes. I'm interested in your observation of there being two different ways people communicate with regard to stories either self-referential and non-self-referential people. Uh, So just chiming in here. Yeah, so in in the podcast, I explained it in full detail, but basically, in a nutshell, it was that there are generally, there's a spectrum of of the way people uh, empathize by telling stories. Uh, Some people, when they, so take two people, and uh, let's say husband-wife. So, the, the wife is telling a story and she's like, oh, my God, at work, this, you know, my boss did this thing and it was so terrible and and blah, blah, blah. And then there are uh, two different ways of responding to that in general on a spectrum. One way of responding that the husband could could say is like, um, oh, my God, like, that sounds awful. Tell me more. Or is that the boss that I met at that one, you know, holiday party? Or, there, you know, there's a way of asking the person for more uh, details, uh, just sticking with the person's story. Another, and I'm calling that non-self-referential. Then we have this other style of, of empathizing and communicating, which is to tell a story of your own. So again, the wife is saying, oh my God, I was the thing at work. 
my boss was this and that, and these other people were this and that. It was terrible. And the husband says, oh, my God, I know how you feel. Because when I was at work yesterday, a similar thing happened. And let, let me tell you, my boss, da, 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 da. Okay, so... There, there, and I find that um, depending on which sort of communicator you are, you will tend to interpret the other person as um, not having good empathy. So if you are a non-self-referential person and you tell a story to another person and they immediately launch into their own life, it can appear as though they're narcissistic and, and they don't have any empathy towards you which is possible, absolutely. But for some people, that's just the way that they learned through their family of origin how to empathize. They, they learn to empathize by telling stories that, that relate to yours. You know, they'll, they'll, again, they'll say something like, oh my God, I know exactly how you feel. It's awful. My boss is an asshole too. Let me tell you a story about my boss. And when you get people of different communication styles, they will misinterpret each other. So that, that was just my um, synopsis on that. So getting back to this patron's email. My partner seems to be very self-referential. I think I am more of a non-self-referential communicator, and I find it causes internal conflict with me when I'm interacting with my partner. I sometimes conclude that my partner, she's highly self-absorbed and has a seemingly harder time showing empathy to others' experiences. But based on your podcast, maybe that's just how she processes the world and how she empathizes. She's also a survivor of childhood abuse. Do you have any thoughts about this? Are these things connected? All right. Um, you know, answer, to answer your question, it's hard for me to know because I don't know you two. Um, you know, basically, if someone's highly self-referential, to me, there are uh, two, two main possibilities that I, that I would look into. One is, is that they are narcissistic and actually uh, have impaired empathy for other people. And so in that instance, it would be accurate to see that person as lacking empathy or lacking exhibiting empathy. But there's also a possibility that they just come from a family of origin in which that's how they empathized was by uh, telling similar stories that relate. And it's hard to know because I I would have to, you know, meet that person and really interact with them uh, for a long time. So I don't know. But to answer your other question, yeah, it's possible that abuse could be connected to being more self-referential. It's um, it's safer to do that, you know, like when when someone is suffering and they're telling us, you know, like, the, again, husband, wife, the wife says, oh, my God, at work, blah, 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 this is so difficult. It's it's a little bit and perhaps a lot more vulnerable to really stick with that person's story, you know, for the husband to say, oh, my God, it sounds awful. You know, how does that feel? Or tell me more or, you know, it, it, it can go deeper and more emotional and, uh, you know, it can be, it can expand the emotional intimacy experience in that moment. Whereas it's safer to say like, Oh my God, I have a similar situation and, and to keep it sort of surface in that way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I could see abuse being potentially related to that, but honestly, I could also see someone having been abused as a child and being very non-self-referential because in a pathological way, because they learned not to look at themselves and to really pay attention to other people um, because they had to in order to avoid further abuse, you know? So it's really hard to say. But the main point here is, is that there are 
narcissistic lack of empathy types of self-reference when communicating and talking about stories. And then there's just a stylistically learned in your family of origin way of empathizing by self-referencing your own stories. So I hope that um, answers your question (laughs) by not answering your question. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from patron Josh. Patron Josh uh, writes, I am a 31-year-old male therapy student. I have been thinking about the therapeutic relationship between myself and future male adolescent clients. Should that relationship seem more fraternal or paternal, meaning as a father or as a brother? My feeling is that if I come across as a father, they may reject my authority. However, if I come across as a brother or a friend, they will not respect me as much. Okay, so uh, good, very excellent question, Josh. You're very wise to think about these kinds of questions. Many would say that you should never uh, be paternal or you should never think about yourself in this way. But to me, that's a misunderstanding and a denial of the nature of therapy. There's always a vibe to the relationship, whether you as a therapist want to admit it or not. And it can be conceptualized as analogous to various different family relationships, like a mother, you know, a maternal vibe that you have with your clients or a or a paternal, you know, a, a, a fatherly vibe or a sibling vibe you have with a client or all your clients, a friendly vibe, a, a child vibe. You can act kind of like a child at times to your clients or a grandparent vibe and, and so on. And in terms of and you should pay attention to that because it's a major factor in the relationship, which is the most important thing in psychotherapy outcomes is the relationship. And, and so, uh, you know, what a, what a lot of people might say is like, well, I'm not anything like that. I'm not their family member. I'm their therapist. And, you know, to think of me as a family member is ridiculous. Well, the, the fact of the matter is, is that we have, you know, fairly simplistic ideas because we're not complicated. We're not that complicated. And we have fairly simplistic templates that we follow when we are in a relationship to another person. And when you're sitting in a room intimately talking about something, it's uh, natural for there to be a vibe to it. Um, there's vibe between marital spouses. Uh, you know, one is more motherly and one's more fatherly or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and it's very typical for a client to, and for a client and therapist to develop a sort of familial relationship you know, often the parent, the therapist will kind of be like a parent or a grandparent. And that's important. And, and it can, it can morph over time. You know, you could be like a mother sometimes to the same client. You could be like a, you could be like a father, you could be like a friend, you can be like a sibling and it's all ways of relating to other people. So Josh, you're asking, should you be more like a father to your adolescent male clients or should you be more like a brother to your adolescent male clients? And it really depends on a number of things. Uh, For example, you might want to assess where the client's wound is. You know, are they, uh, is their attachment wound, does their attachment wound, if they have one, does it involve their father? And if so, 
by you becoming like a father to the adolescent male client, does that help heal the wound or does it aggravate it? You know, it's just, it, it depends on all those sorts of things. Also, another thing to think about is what sort of vibe you give off. You're a younger male therapist, 31 years old. Do you come across to people like a younger person? Do you have a younger vibe or do you have an older vibe? And so sometimes your the role relationally that you take to your clients is somewhat hamstringed or limited by the vibe that you have as a human being. But at the same time, you want to potentially learn how to morph those vibes that you have to the effect of your decisions with your treatment of your clients. Um, also, with particular clients that you work with, I mean, how, how do you come together as a, as a duo? You know, like um, there might be times where you think it's better to be like a brother to a client, but the way you come together, you're more like a father. And is that helpful? Is it helpful to fall in line with the vibe that the two of you seem to naturally have? Or should you fight against that for the treatment? These are all, you know, good questions to ask. And also, what do you want to do? You know, there might be kinds of roles that you feel comfortable doing. And so just, you know, thinking about that kind of thing. So it's really complicated. And I would say, you know, play around with it and, and think about it and consult about it and see what works best. Um, but really, I found that with most teens that I worked with, it was best to be more like a sibling, more like a friend, because they were more likely to open up to me and to, to hear me. If they saw me as an adult, they were much less likely to open up to me. Um, it depended on the client, of course. But um, when I was younger, I looked younger, naturally, because I was younger. And I would try to act really young. And I found that that really helped kids to open up more. It really disarmed them. You know, for me, I did a lot of in-home therapy. So I'd go into their bedroom and me and the teen boy or the teen girl would sit there and talk about Justin Bieber and Eminem and stuff. <laughs> and I would, I would dress sort of um, younger. And I mean, I wasn't acting like I was a kid, but you know, I, it was clear I was a therapist and it was clear I was an adult, but I tried to just be more casual, I guess, and more down to earth and, and not very formal. And I found that that really helped the teenagers to open up to me. Um, but at the same time, there were definite elements when I worked with teenagers of me being a father and me being a mother to them as well. So it really just kind of depended on the moment and the need at hand. But I really love the question, Josh. No one's ever really asked me this before. And like I said, you're really wise to think about these kinds of things. Okay, let's, let's read another email. I'm really powering through your patron emails. This is fun. Actually, let's take a break first, and when we get back, we'll answer more patron emails. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Go to patreon.com. We're really close to our next goal on Patreon, and once we get to that goal, we're going to institute a scholarship fund for listeners so we can help people become therapists. Also, join the Facebook fan group where all the fans like to talk with each other. I don't go over there because I want people to feel free to talk about whatever they want to over there. Also, uh, like us on Facebook, like our Facebook uh, page, because there you can get updates and episodes, and you can also participate in our Tuesday Tougher Bluff game. 
Also, if you're having trouble with the Patreon feed the, or the patron feed, email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. I can help you with your IT needs. Also, if you're looking for older episodes, we have 750 episodes or something. And so uh, if you're listening on your phone, you probably only have access to like 300 episodes. We have, we have episodes going back to 2008. So if on your phone you don't see episodes, you probably only see episodes going back to like 2016. And a lot of our really great episodes are back then. And so if, if you want an arc, if you want to go listen to those old ones, you have to go to our website. Our website has all the episodes. It's, it's really the only place that has all the episodes. Patreon doesn't have all the episodes. Uh, I could tell you the reasons why, but <laughs> it's sort of complicated. Also, if you want a mug, then you have to become a $20 patron by going to patreon.com. I will personally mail you a mug it is a wonderful mug. It is the official Psychology in Seattle podcast mug, and it has an awesome handle, and it's, it's my favorite mug shape, even if it, my face wasn't blasted all over it, and Umberto and Bob and Rebecca and everything. I would still love this mug because it's like the perfect shape for drinking coffee. Okay, let's read an email here. Okay, this email is from Molly. Molly writes in, can you talk a little about venting in psychotherapy? Can you talk a little bit about venting in psychotherapy? I've read studies that say too much venting can be counterproductive for the client because it gets them worked up even more. Any thoughts on this? Yeah. Um, so it all depends on your definition of venting, uh, which I will just say that in the research literature, they seem to use a different definition of venting than the one that I use with the people around me. The, the definition of venting that I use around me involves like listening to people talk about, you know, their stress, you know, like vent about your stress. Tell me what's going on. And then I listen and I provide support and I normalize their feelings and we find solutions. And, you know, that's them venting. They're getting things off their chest. It's, you know, like uh, the other day, a supervisee was talking with me about her internship and she was really stressed out. She was really um, upset about how things were going and she felt inadequate and she was venting her negative feelings. And, and I was listening and I normalized her feelings and I, I sat with her with her feelings. I you know, just let her talk and, you know, heard her out and let her, you know, get them all out there. And again, validated her, normalized her. I self-disclosed about my own feelings of frustration in similar situations and my own feelings of inadequacy, particularly when I was at her stage. And then, you know, we talked about ways to cope and and how to be inspired to move forward. And, and later on, she f said she felt a lot better, you know, and thanked me for letting her get hurt, you know, thanked me for letting her vent about her feelings. So that's the way we use the word vent. But in the research literature, the way they use venting is very problematic in my view, because one, that's not the, the way they use it in the psychological research literature is not the way that a lot of people use it. And two, they never define it, I, or rarely do they. I just now perused dozens of articles on the uh, psychological effects of quote-unquote venting, and not one time did they define what venting was. Not one time. 
but I could sort of triangulate a def. It just drives me crazy. You know, like whenever I do deep dives, I always provide a definition. When I, when I wrote my book on supervision, multi-role clinical supervision, I pri- I provided as many definitions as possible. I find it to just be highly problematic that you can just throw out a word like venting and assume that everyone understands exactly what you mean, especially when you're talking about human behavior and human language and different cultures are going to read these things differently. I just find it to be just like really irresponsible in the research literature. And all it takes is like one sentence. You know, we define venting or, you know, we are basing our definition of venting on previous research literature that defined it as blah, 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 blah. I mean, if you're going to research a psychological phenomenon like venting, shouldn't there be a decided definition of venting, even if it is fairly amorphous? Because even a definition of venting would still be defining a social constructed, weird, amorphous behavior that some people would call one thing venting and some people would call that not venting. But without any definition, then we're just left to our own devices to figure out what the researchers are referring to. It's just ridiculous. It drives me crazy. There's a similar problem that I have with psychological research or not a similar problem, but another problem that I have is that they rarely talk about effect size. You know, they'll be like, these two things are correlated. And it's like, well, how much are they correlated? You know, give me, give me an effect size here. You know, like, are we talking like a slight correlation or are we talking like a, like a major effect uh, of, of this factor? You know, what kind of weight does this factor have on this, on this uh, dependent variable? And it's like, you know, they just say, well, they're correlated, you know, as, as if that tells me anything, you know, a significant correlation almost says nothing to me. It's just like, well, unless you tell me the effect size, I have no idea what you mean by that. I have no idea if, if it's like, you know, uh, has the weight of 0.001 on that fact on that dependent variable, or it's like, you know, 50% of the variance of the dependent variable is on that is on that factor. Anyway, so yeah, no definition of venting. So to answer your question, Molly is, you know, it really just depends on your definition of, of venting. So, uh, so let's look at the literature in terms of the way all the site, you know, the psychologists and the social psychologists that use venting in their research uh, uh, in, in empirical observation. Here's some quotes from different articles that I found. Researchers conclude that venting is not a good way of coping as it actually increases rather than decreases the stress and level of stress. Another quote here from a different study. It should be clear that the venting hypothesis and its corollaries are myths. Another, so the venting hypothesis is they're referring to the idea that venting helps you. Another quote here. Results results show that in the short term, attending to and venting one's negative feelings through art making is a less effective means of improving mood than is turning away from a negative mood to something more positive, unquote. So I think that, you know, this is very seductive. These are very seductive findings, I think, to cognitive behavioral therapists, people that it's like, you know, talking about your emotions isn't going to help you. You got to find solutions or I don't know. And, and so it, I think it's, um, I, I'm guessing that these kinds of studies are, are very, uh, you know, seductive to generalize broadly 
um, for CBT people <laughs> and, and very upsetting to psychodynamic and humanistic people because to psychodynamic interpersonal relational humanistic therapies, you know, talking about your negative experiences is a pretty, you know, common action that you're doing in therapy. But anyway, so the other thing that the, the research literature doesn't always look into is, well, okay, sure, there's venting. So even if we do define venting as the way psychologists define it, which is, again, I believe what they mean when they're saying venting is the expression of negative, like the encouragement to express a negative emotion. So an example of this that I found uh, in the literature, they they didn't actually provide this example, but I sort of triangulated this, was you have an angry teenager, and so you you tell the and the teenager is frequently angry and hostile and has this anger problem. And so you tell the teenager to throw bottles at the wall or to break plates or to punch their pillow or to punch a punching bag or to, you know, beat a stick against a tree or something that back in the day, they used to think that, you know, this catharsis would actually help someone to vent their anger so that they wouldn't be angry later. And research has found that that's not necessarily true. For some people, it, it does help. But for many people, it doesn't. It basically just makes it either doesn't help at all or it makes them worse. The, the idea goes, it's like if you're upset and you sort of encourage the mode of being rageful and hostile and violent, then it kind of encourages future rageful, hostile, violent behavior in the future. So telling a kid to punch a punching bag when they're angry might actually make them more likely to punch actual human beings when they're angry. And a better way to help people with their anger responses is through relaxation, mindfulness, you know, distracting yourself, you know, just getting your body to calm down is, is uh, generally better. But it really depends. I mean, I've worked with teenagers where they have found that punching a pillow really helps them. So, you know, it, these findings are often generalized as if every human being is the same. And that's just ridiculous. So um, so that's what they mean by venting in the research literature is like um, getting just purely just, you know, working yourself into a lather around your negative emotions, like, like two coworkers getting together and just completely just bitching about their uh, boss and then just doing nothing about it, you know? But what often is not talked about is like, well, what do you do after the event? You know, do you vent and then you reevaluate? Do you vent and then get support from someone else? Do you, do you vent and then try to find a solution? Do you vent and then, um, you know, hug it out with someone or, you know, that it's just usually focused purely on the venting and, um, and the focusing on the negativity. It's, it's, it's almost like a, a behavior of negativity. You know, you're just like, ah, this sucks. And then you just stop. Like you don't, you don't do anything positive as a result of that. So just to give you an idea of, of again, trying to triangulate this, definition of venting that they're using in the research literature, they have different measures of, of trying to find out how people cope with difficulty. And they have diff they have 12 different ways that people deal with stress. And here are the different 12. And so by giving you the different, and one of them is venting, one of them is venting emotion. Um, uh, and the other 11 are different other ways that people cope. And so uh, you can sort of triangulate what they mean uh, by venting, by listening to these other items. So you have venting emotion, 
which is one way that people deal with stress. But then other ones is like seeking social support for instrumental reasons. So seeking social support for instrumental reasons. That means like, you know, your boss is stressing you out. So you go to someone and you say, can you help me advocate? Can you advocate for me by going to my boss? You know, I'm stressed out with my boss. Can you go tell my boss to fuck off? <laughs> or can you go tell my boss to lay off me or something? So that's an instrumental, you know, seeking social support. Uh, uh, item number three, seeking social support for emotional reasons. So this is, you know, going to someone that you're stressed out by your boss, you go to your coworker and you, you know, you tell them what's going on and your coworker says, oh my God, that sounds awful. Now, this one sounds like venting to me. This is my definition of venting, seeking social support for emotional reasons. To me, that's venting, but they define venting as not this. It's almost like the opposite of this. Um, other coping skills or methods, behavioral disengagement, meaning just like getting away completely from the stressor, self-blame, planning, you know, like planning how to overcome or something. Suppression of competing activities, humor, effort, wishful thinking, active coping, and denial. So, so here again, you, you just see that venting emotion is, I think, very narrowly defined as just purely expressing negative emotion, and that's all that you do. And you don't necessarily get any emotional support from anyone. You don't, uh, I don't know try to find a solution, blah, blah, blah. So, um, so yeah, that's what I think about all that kind of stuff. It drives me crazy. No definition. <laughs> now I'm sure in some article or book or something that they define venting in a better way. And, um, you know, and maybe if any of you have one of those definitions, I'd be, I'd love to see it. But, um, you know, I just reviewed in today like dozens of research articles in uh, psychological journals, social psychology journals, and not one of them defined anything. They, not only did they not define venting, but they didn't find any of the other factors that they were talking about and concepts they were talking about. But anyway, I, f I feel like I understand what they mean by venting, which is, as an example, like I said, punching your pillow or just purely complaining and, and in a, in a rageful way, you know, focusing on your negative emotion. Again, I think the reason why they, they isolate that and call it venting is because um, back in the day, there was a belief that uh, doing that actually helped. And, but most people today understand that that's not necessarily um, helpful. Anyway. Okay. Let's go on to another email. I hope that answers your question, Molly. Uh, well, actually, let me, uh, let me expand on that a little bit. So I believe, and there's evidence that, and I have seen in my own life and in the life of people around me, that when people uh, talk about their negative emotions to a supportive person, that that person uh, is better able to cope with life. So whether you call that venting or you call that seeking social support for emotional reasons, um, research supports that that is helpful. So I, I think it's just very important that when we uh, talk about the psychological research regarding venting that we understand, they, the psychological researchers are using a different definition of venting than I think is commonly used. 
And so we shouldn't walk around to lay people and say venting isn't helpful because they might, you know, really misunderstand what we mean by that. What we should probably say instead is uh, venting is has been found to be ineffectual or even harmful. And venting is defined as focusing on the negative emotion and not actually seeking support from other people, (laughs) you know, that that because. I would, everyone I know, if you just ask them to provide a definition of venting, I I would, I'm going to ask people actually, but I would suspect that they would have a much more broader definition of the word venting, you know, that they would call it um, getting emotional support from other people. You know, another word that I sometimes use is downloading. I tell people, you know, I'm in, I'm in Seattle. We use, there's a lot of IT people. It's actually kind of funny and when you live in Seattle, there you know we're in the land of Microsoft and Amazon and Adobe and Google and Facebook and um, you know there's just so much IT around here that people end up using these computer terms in as metaphors for for life, right? And so one of the words that people will use around here is downloading, right? They'll be like, oh, yeah. I need to download. Can you listen to me for a second? So it's like you get home from work, you talk to your wife and you say, I need to download for 30 minutes. Can you listen to me about something that happened today? So to me, that's, you know, that's another word for venting, uh, which it, it, it encompasses a lot of things. It's, it's not necessarily focusing on negative emotion. It's, it's like just processing what happened to you. And then you're, uh, the person you're talking to validates you, supports you, listens, is interested, cares about you, um, asks you questions, uh, maybe provides some um, perspective. You know, that to me is the process of venting or downloading. But that is clearly not what they're talking about in the research literature. And I, I just, I find it, the, the reason why I find it problematic is because I worry that people are going to, um, people who don't understand psychological research or don't take the time to really figure this out, they will look at this and it will support a um, paternal Western, Northwestern European notion that you shouldn't talk about your feelings and that talking about your feelings is what, you know, what pussies do and what women do and and that it's always a bad thing that you know you know all you do is talk about your feelings blah 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 you know it doesn't do you any help and i'll you know you just complain 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 you know you, you should figure out solutions to your problems or you know keep it to yourself if you don't have something nice to say don't say anything at all you know these are incredibly empirically supported destructive notions in northwestern european society and that's you know where a lot of American society comes from and uh, Canada too, by the way. And so these, these notions are, are destructive and uh, paternal and anti-emotion and anti-dependency and anti-support and anti-social uh, networking with each other, if you will. And so I worry that these, you know, these statements like um, just again, reading this, um, researchers conclude that venting is not a good way of coping. 
I mean, if you just said that to it to the general public, researchers conclude that venting is not a good way of coping. If you just said that, that's a quote from a study that I just read. If you just said that to the general public, I'm guessing a lot of people, if not most, would interpret that as, huh, so when I come home from work and I'm stressed out or I just got diagnosed with cancer or I'm, you know, uh, I'm stressed about my, um, you know, uh, my parenting problems or, um, or I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, I feel anxiety a lot and I want to talk with someone about it. I shouldn't do, I shouldn't talk with people about it. I shouldn't find someone and, and talk about how I feel about those things. I, I, I feel like this literature is highly irresponsible because it basically and I'm guessing, I mean, correct, you know, you tell me out there, when I say this, when I say this phrase, researchers conclude that venting is not a good way of coping. Do you or do you not interpret it the way that I interpret that, which is researchers conclude that talking about your feelings to a supportive other is a bad idea. I mean, that's what I hear when I read, when I hear that sentence. And so if, so if, now, if I'm alone or I'm in the minority, then great. If 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 most people, lay people included, would interpret that the way that they're talking about it, which is very narrowly defined, I think is, again, really focusing on the negativity, particularly anger, and doing nothing else around that, you know, do, get not getting any support, not deriving any meaning, not deriving any kind of acceptance of your situation or having perspective like none of that it's just purely just like blah rage and then you're done you know then you move on with your day if if a majority of people see it as that that's what it means then then i will concede that i'm in this minority of people who define venting as something differently and i will say that these psychological researchers are you know doing a fine job I, they still should fucking provide a definition but they don't but uh, many don't, or the ones I came across, the dozens that I came across don't. But um, you know, I just find that to be irresponsible, and and I want it just it and it just makes me wonder if they have some kind of agenda. You know, there, there's there's a there's a contingency in the psychotherapy and psychology field that I have seen that is has this general belief that talking about your feelings is bad. Like, can you imagine that? I have met therapists, counselors, respected people, professors who don't say this in so many words, but very clearly give me the idea that they believe that talking about your feelings is bad for people or scary or uh, will lead to bad things. You know, like my, my uh, dissertation was on um, asking people about how they experienced difficult clinical moments as a therapist. So my, my, my dissertation was a study in which I asked therapists, seasoned therapists, you know, people who were in the field 15 years or longer, um, you know, 15 years all the way up to 40 years or something. I, I asked them to tell me about a difficult clinical moment that they went through as a therapist when they were sitting in the room with a client and how they experienced it, you know, what kind of feelings they had around it. And as I was recruiting uh, for participants, because I, I had to get all my participants myself, you know, I had to find seasoned therapists who would be willing to talk with me about this because it was an hour long interview in person, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it was kind of hard to find people. 
And I was asking around and I went to a colleague of mine, a, you know, a professor, and I asked them if they had anyone that would participate. And they said, oh, you know, what, what's this about? And I said, well, you know, it's, it's, I'm at, I want to know seasoned therapist's experience of, of difficult clinical moments. And she looked at me like, oh, no, you, that's a bad idea. You, you shouldn't ask people that question. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, well, no one's going to want to talk about that. You know, your, your dissertation is doomed to fail. And I'm like, I was scared. I was like, what do you mean? My dissertation, you know, she's like, you're, no one's going to want to talk about that. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, well, no one's, no one's going to want to talk about, you know, the feelings that they have while they're having difficult clinical moments. And, and plus, you know, that's not a good idea to, to make people talk about those things. And I was like, I, I, mean, I was just like, what? Have, you know, am I in bizarro world? Like, I'm not supposed to ask therapists about their feelings. Therapists don't want to talk about their feelings. It's a bad idea to ask therapists about their feelings. I mean, it was, it was worrisome. Uh, you know, now, fast forward like, you know, three days and I had more than enough participants because uh, therapists – uh, you know, newsflash, therapists don't mind talking about their feelings and therapists are generally very comfortable talking about their feelings and therapists see the value in talking about their their subjective experience. So, so I've seen that before. That's just one example, but I've seen other examples where people will, you know, like, um, well, anyway, uh, my, my, <laughs> my point is, is that, uh, this whole venting research and venting is bad. It's not a good way to cope. It, 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 it I don't know. It, it, there's something really nefarious about it to me. Or it, I, either it's either it is born from nefarious means, or it accidentally has a nefarious effect because of the way they are using a definition of venting. All right. Well, that is that. That's an interesting road I've been on today. Let me know what you think. If you want, you can email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. Thanks for joining me today. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it.